God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Well, I'm glad that you've chosen to uh, spend an hour of your weekend with us, whether you're here in the room or whether you're in our uh, rooms in Skagit or some of our community sites at the Gym Church or in Belize. And those of you who join us in our online campus, so grateful that you're with us um, every single week. And it's good to be together again today to worship and to look into God's word. Before I get into the sermon, I wanna just mention last Monday was the end of our season of prayer and fasting, our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I know that many of you participated in that to one degree or another, and we've heard a lot of stories of how God worked in and through you during that season, and we would love to hear more of those stories. And if you're willing uh, to share you know, your experience with the fasting season, uh, we would love for you to email that to us. The uh, way, best way to do that is stories at cornwallchurch.com. And I'll just say this is not in any way meant as a, a way to brag or to say, look how spiritual you are or to pat ourselves on the back. It really is to encourage and to be able to share uh, what God has done so that we can sharpen each other and that he gets the glory on that. One more thing on that is that we had the 21-day prayer um, uh, and fasting devotional that was not only available on our website but on the YouVersion app. And over 6,000 people downloaded the YouVersion app, which surprised me. But more than 1,000 of you completed the 21 days, which is really cool that we have that unity and all uh, been doing that together. But praising God for that season and look forward to doing that again in the future. Well, we are in this series called Go in Love and Be a Light. And if you've been around Cornwall at any, uh, for any length of time, you will probably recognize that that's not just the title of this series. That is terminology and words that we use around here as a part of the strategy and part of the calling that God has placed on us to go and be, to go in love and to be a light. And that that is something that we don't want it to just be a slogan, <clears throat> just a phrase or words that we say. We don't even want it just to be events that we do. Our prayer is that this is who we are and how we live, that we go in the love and we be the light of Jesus in our world. But those words are as well the theme, <clears throat> excuse me, of this, this study that we're in, in this document that we're looking at, this document that was written from a pastor who had shepherded some people in Ephesus. He's now on an island uh, called Patmos. And John, this pastor John, <clears throat> writes to his congregation, and some of the themes that he writes in this document is basically a sermon that is in the Bible in, in a little book way towards the back of the New Testament that's referred to as, as 1 John. And in this, the theme of love, the themes of light, the theme of life, it comes up again and again and again if you've read through it. It's a very short little uh, document, five little chapters. And it comes over and over again. In fact, the writing of John in this letter is, is different and unique in that it is kind of cyclical. 
Um, N.T. Wright, the, the New Testament um, scholar, said that when you read Paul's writings, when you read his letters, they're linear. They're going in a direction. They have kind of this, this um, systematic approach to them. But in John's letter, it's not so much linear going, it's more this cyclical. And then he uses an analogy. He says, it's kind of like the difference between a hymn and a chorus. Now, I don't want to cause any, any worship wars here today. But some of you raised on hymns, you know that a hymn kind of tells this story. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Ladies only on verse 2, and men re- will join on the refrain. And we always skip verse 3. I never understood. And as a little kid, I thought that must be a Presbyterian verse. But regardless, <laughs> hymns go in a linear fashion, and choruses have a tendency to repeat. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. For those of you who are anti-chorus, let me remind you that when Isaiah saw these angelic beings around the throne of God, they continued to say the same thing over and over again, holy, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who wasn't his, all of that. So enough to say that Paul's writings are linear. See, that was a little bit of a divergent side touch. Paul's writings tend to be linear. This writing in, in the first John is, is kind of, it comes back to these themes again and again, which is great because one of my biggest challenges is I can't seem to get through a sermon without only getting to like two verses, but all the stuff that I missed the first time around, I'll be able to hit when it comes up again and again. And that will be the case again today. I'm really going to key on two verses. We're in 1 John chapter 2. And if you have your Bible or tablet or device, you can turn there. And we're going to look primarily at two verses, verse 7 and 8. A little bit of a review from last week to get us uh, caught back up and cover just just a little bit of what I I didn't have time for last week. In chapter 2, John writes to this congregation. He says, listen, I'm writing these things so that you will avoid sin. But in the unlikely event that you actually sin, the good news is that we have an advocate. We have the righteous one, Jesus, and he acts as our defense attorney, you know, before the Father. And what's better than just him being a a voice for us, he's also the atoning sacrifice, the big word, propitiation. He is the one that's the atoning sacrifice to take care of our sins so we can have assurance because of who he is and what he's done and what he has done for us. And that at the end of that, we looked at verse 3 just briefly where it says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And then for the next three or four or five verses, it talks a lot about knowing Jesus, obeying his commands, knowing and obeying this obedience thing. And as we pointed out briefly at the end last week, is that obedience is not something negative. A slave obeys because they have to based on fear. An employee obeys because they need to based on a compensation or earning. But our connection with God is not as a slave and a master, and it's not as an employee with a boss. The whole point is our fellowship with God through Christ, this fellowship, this union, this communion, this walking with, remaining with, doing life, walking in the the everyday uh, relationship with God. And if we are obedient to commands for any other reason than fellowship with God, we miss the whole point. I mean, think about this. Wasn't Jesus' big problem with the religious leaders is that they followed the laws, they followed the commands, they were obedient, but they missed the whole point. I mean, it wasn't just that they knew the Ten Commandments. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament. 365 of them were prohibitions, thou shalt not, don't do this, don't do that. 248 of them were exhortations, you should do this, you you shall, you shall. And they knew all of these things, and they memorized them, and they followed them. They obeyed the law and the commands. But the result was they became very pride-filled, very self-righteous, 
which resulted in judgment and condemnation towards others. And they had this lifeless rules that they kept, which actually isolated them from people who needed their help the most. And their legalistic religion pushed them farther away from God when the whole thing was supposed to be drawing them closer to God. And that is not the goal. The goal is fellowship. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to see that right living comes from right relationship. It's not an if then, it's a since then. It's not if I don't do these things and if I will do these things and if I'm this disciplined and if I do all this, if, 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 then somehow I can have a great relationship with God. Since then says, since I've been adopted into the family, since I have an advocate, since I've already been forgiven, since I'm called a son and daughter, since I have fellowship in this great relationship with God, then I will want to follow him and obey him and do these things. And I just want to say, that is my desire and goal for every single one of us in our spiritual journey. Listen, I want you to know God's word. I love preaching and teaching God's word. I want us to have a passion for God's word. But it's not just what we know, it's who we know. If that doesn't lead us to a deeper intimacy and fellowship with Jesus, we'd miss the point. If we're just Bible answer men that can, can win the quizzing contest, we've missed the point. And I want us to live a life of obedience. I want us to strive after holiness. I want us to be conformed more into the image of Christ. But it's not just what we do, it's why we do it. It's because of this fellowship. And so in the midst of all of that, he comes to the end of that, that section in, in uh, verse 6 where he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The whole of our being and doing is becoming more like Jesus. Now, I will say that in that passage, chapter 2, verse 3 through 6 that I'm skipping over, there are at least two or three other sermons in there that you're not getting. So let's get to the two verses we're going to try to cover today. You ready for that? Okay, we're going to pick up at verse 7. Two verses we're going to cover. Verse 7, it starts off this way. It says, dear friends. Okay, well, let's start with two words before we get to two verses. Dear friends, if you've read this or you were with us last week, you remember that just seven verses earlier, at the beginning of chapter 2, he starts off and says, my dear children. And it's almost like he's taking this spiritual parenting role. He has been their pastor. He has poured into them. He loves them. He wants to give them fatherly advice. This is the way that you are to live. Kind of, you know, from his vantage point as a spiritual father to them as children. Now, he says, dear friends. Now it's not kind of fathered down. Now it's like we're brothers, we're sisters. We're on the same level. We're equal here. I'm not speaking to you as your pastor now. I'm speaking to you as another one who has an advocate, another one who's been forgiven just like you are, another one who's been brought into fellowship and in the family of God the same way you have. We're on equal ground here. Now, in some of your translations, in a better, actual, more literal translation of the Greek word that we have there as dear friends, is a word that we don't use a lot, and so that's why we go with the dear friends. It's the word beloved or beloved. I mean, it's rare that we hear that. If you do, it's probably, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today, and you're at a funeral. We just don't use that, that word a whole lot. But I think it's far better to encapsulate what he's trying to communicate. Because when he refers to them as beloved, it's given a little bit of a preview and will reiterate what he's going to be telling them. It also talks about his relationship with them, that he loves them. But what's more important is it reminds them 
of their identity. Not just that their pastor loves them, but that they are loved by God. There, 30 years ago, a, a man named Henry Nouwen wrote a book called The Life of the Beloved. The whole idea, you know, I am my beloved's and he is mine. This idea of, of living in such a way that we recognize my identity, my value, my worth, my security does not come about by something I do, something I've achieved, something I own, something that other people say. My value is that I am the beloved of the Father. And when we begin to see our identity as a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the Father, that my value is not for anything else I've done, it's because of who I am in Christ. My worth, my security now is in this fact that this never changes, I'm beloved. When we grasp that and that really gets a hold of us, it changes how we live. And I think John is saying to his, his congregation, his people that he loves, listen, don't forget who you are. You are, you are the sons and daughters. You are the beloved ones. You are holy and, and, and chosen and dearly loved. Now, we gotta get off these first two words or we never get through the two verses. So he starts off, beloved, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Listen, I'm writing this sermon, but it's not a new one. He's saying, this is not new material. What I'm gonna tell you, you've heard before. You've heard it from the beginning. And and he's probably thinking back to when he was in their midst and he was pastoring them. You know, I shared these things with you before. But he says, from the beginning, and, and maybe it was even before he was their pastor. Because if you recall, Timothy had been put in charge of that area as the bishop over the churches in Ephesus. And maybe he's thinking, it's not just what I told you, it's what Timothy told you. And maybe it's even before that. Because Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos were there, Acts chapter 18. And maybe it was before that because Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And maybe he's even going beyond that because Paul was speaking the words of Jesus. So maybe he's saying, these are the things you've heard from me and from Timothy and Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, Paul. These are the words of Jesus. And what if he's going even before that? This old command that he's talking about, what if he's talking about something from before Jesus, like the Old Testament, like Moses? And when he talks about this old command, Which one is he talking about? Because remember, there were 613 of them in the Old Testament. Which command is he talking about? And I think as we read, it becomes really clear the command that he's talking about. It became very clear in Paul's writings. It becomes becomes very clear in John's writings. It's very clear in what Jesus said. Because Jesus said, of the 613 commands and laws of the Old Testament, they can all be summarized in the command of love, the command of love. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, the Shema, the Shema is Hebrew word that means hear, listen, it's the first word. Hear, O Israel, this is the prayer that every Jewish person would pray, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Leviticus chapter 19, This is two weeks in a row that Leviticus has made it into a sermon. It's amazing. (laughs) Leviticus 19. There's a lot of people that would like to throw Leviticus 19 out of the Bible. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, when Jesus said that, he wasn't making up a new commandment there. He's quoting something that was written 1,500 years earlier. 
So, in Matthew 22, when Jesus is cornered by the Pharisees and specifically an expert in the law, one who knew all 613, could tell you where they were found, could, could explain them all, and he says to Jesus, okay, which one's the goat? Of all the commands of 613, which one is the greatest? And Jesus quotes these two. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And then you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when John writes, this old command I'm writing you, he's writing the command of love. And lest you say, well, Bob, that's all kind of circumstantial, let me point out a parallel passage that he writes. You know, I've mentioned that he writes these, these three little documents towards the end, not the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, not creative on his titles. 1 John's a short little document, 2 John's even shorter. But there's a parallel passage in this second document, this letter that he writes called 2 John. Don't want to get confused with going back and forth, but in 2 John, if you have your Bible, if you just like turn over two pages or just swipe over in your little app or whatever, not if you're on Tinder, but in the Bible app. All right. If you look at that, in 2 John, verse 5 and 6, look at the parallels here. He writes, and now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command. Sound familiar? Yeah. But one uh, we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his command. Sound familiar? As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Very clear. It's not a new command I'm giving you. I'm giving you something you've heard before, old. I mean, clear back to Moses. It's the command of love, very clear. But in 1 John, there's a little bit of confusion in these two verses we're looking at. Look at this. 1 John 1, or 2, uh, verse seven says, dear friends, we've already looked at this, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. Got that established. The next verse. Yet I am writing you a new command. Okay, wait a second. So which is it? First you say it's not new, it's old, now you say it's new. Is this some kind of a riddle? Are we, are, is this a word play? Is it new or is it old? Is the command love? Is the command love a new command or an old command? And the answer is yes. Yes, yes, because the command of love is old chronologically, but what he's gonna point out is that it is new dimensionally. It's old chronologically. Moses wrote it 1,500 years before, but in Jesus, when Jesus comes, now it's at a new dimension. This old command takes on a new level, a new standard, it's a new extent, at a new proportion, a new capacity, a new scope, a new magnitude, far beyond. So he goes on about this, this old new commandment. He says, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus. Now here's where I want us to just kind of focus in on this for a little bit. Because the command is nothing new for us in this room. Of course, love one another. We've heard that. But he says, while it was written by Moses in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it is fully realized 
and fully revealed finally in Jesus. It's always been there. But Jesus comes along and he takes it to a level, to a dimension it's never been seen before. As I was working on this sermon, I was trying to think, what, what's, a, what's an illustration, what's an analogy of something that's been around but then it's taken to a new level? And, and, and I've got a few, and, and none of these, all of these fall short, but let me just try it, okay? Um, so in, in, the, uh, in track and field, uh, there's an event called the high jump. It's been around since 18-something or another. And when it started, the primary way people did the high jump was a, a technique called the scissor. And at that point, the world record was, was uh, four feet, eight inches for the high jump. Now, there had been some iterations with the Western uh, roll and then with the straddle, and it made it a little bit higher. But in 1963, there was a 16-year-old high school student from Medford High School, Medford, Oregon. Not, he was just basically an average athlete. He tried to play football, he got hit so hard one time, he left the field crying and he never played again. Not, not laughing at him, I would have done the same. And he wasn't big enough to play basketball, so he decided track and field, and he decided to try the high jump. And with the, 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 uh, the method of trying to do this, he could get his feet over the bar, but his, his, um, his I'm not sure what to call it in church, his backside kept knocking the bar off and scratching his jumps. What shall we call it today? Heine. Oh, my word. <sighs> Mercy. People online, I'm sorry. I apologize for Linda. So, so in 1963, this, this Medford High School 16-year-old, he, he, he was trying this, and he kept hitting his backside on the bar. And then he realized, if I arch my back, it automatically lifts my backside. And so he started trying to experiment with this thing that, that worked for him, and his coaches were saying, you can't do it that way, that's not how we do it, don't do that, keep working on this other method. But he kept trying, he kept trying to fix this thing. Five years later, he's 21 years old, he's a student at Oregon State University, but he also finds himself at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, and he wins the gold medal in the high jump with this weird style that no one has ever seen before, but has become nicknamed as the Fosbury Flop. His name was Dick Fosbury, and he does things completely different. Instead of going feet first, he goes head first. Instead of going over forward, he goes over backwards. And while the high jump had been around for years, when Fosbury introduces the flop, it takes it to a whole different level to where now the world's record is over eight feet and no high jumper worth his weight in anything does anything except the Fosbury flop. It was always there. It was old, but it became new again. Same event, but it was taken to a different level. Books have been around for thousands and thousands of years. There's been all kinds of books for thousands of years. But in the 1500s, when the Gutenberg uh, movable type press, the printing press, came into being, suddenly now books take it to the next level, to a level they'd never experienced before, the way it could be produced and be, the, to, the, could be distributed. The books had always been here, but that made things new. There's always been modes of transportation, even transportation with wheels. But with the introduction of the internal combustible engine, suddenly that transportation, while it's been old, is taken to a new level so that we have these cars and automobiles that can go faster and farther than ever dreamed before. It was old, but it's new. There's always been torches. There's always been candles. There's always been lanterns. 
But with the invention of the incandescent electric light bulb, suddenly it's a new world. There's still light. There's always been that light. But now it's at a new level. You see where I'm going with this? The command had been old, love one another. They'd heard it for 1,500 years, but Jesus comes along and he raises it dimensionally to a level they had never seen before and takes it beyond what they ever dreamed imaginable. John says it's an old command, but it's being seen now in a new dimension. Jesus himself would say this. John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you. Love one another. Wait, Jesus, that's not a new command. That's an old command. That's 1,500 years old. Love one another as I have loved you. This is a new level. This is a new command. And let me just camp here for a minute. And let's just remember how Jesus took this old command and took it to dimensions it had never seen before. When he says this in John 13, You may remember the context. He's in the upper room. It's the night before he's crucified. John 13 starts off saying, having loved his own, he now shows them the full extent of his love. And yes, while that will be fulfilled on the cross, that night around the table, Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord, their master, washes their feet. No one does that. Not only does Jesus demonstrate his love by washing their feet, he washes their feet knowing what they will all do, knowing that they will all desert him, knowing that Peter will deny him three times, even washing Judas's feet knowing that he is betraying him and selling him out in just a few minutes. Oh, it's an old command, love one another, but this is at a different level. Nobody loves like that. And it wasn't just the 12. I mean, Jesus would love everyone that way, saint and sinner, male and female, Jew and Gentile, friend and enemy. And and he would teach this love at a new level. You have heard it said, Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right out of the law, Leviticus, lex talionis. It was this thing of, of, of equal, you know, payback. He says, but I tell you, Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your cloak as well. You've heard the old command, love one another. This is at a whole different level. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Whoa, 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 Jesus, wait a second. Oh yeah, it's an old command but he's raised the bar. And that neighbor thing, by the way, when he explains who the neighbor is, he uses a Samaritan as the hero in the story. No one had ever loved like this. And it wasn't just what he taught. It's what he modeled. Matthew. Everyone hated Matthew. Matthew was their Jewish brother, but he was a traitor He had sold out, he had had sided with the Romans and he's cheating his fellow countrymen, his own brothers and sisters out of their money. He's He's getting wealthy by stealing from them and what does Jesus do? Does he hate Matthew like everybody else? He invites him to be a part of his inner circle. Come be one of my disciples, follow me. Or Zach, Zacchaeus, he's not only a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. 
Jesus would have just, could have just walked right past him. Everyone else did. But Jesus stops and says, I'm going to go have dinner with you and your friends. Prostitutes. Prostitutes. These ladies who are making their living by breaking one of the Ten Commandments and committing adultery, dirty deeds, done dirt cheap, undiscriminate, as long as someone can pay. This is how they make their livelihood. And Jesus said, I want to get to know you. He's given the nickname as a put-down, friend of sinners, and he wears it as a badge of honor. The command is old, love one another. But Jesus takes it to a dimension that's never been done before. No one ever loved like that. The woman at the well, culturally, spiritually speaking, she has three strikes against her. In that culture, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, and she has a highly immoral life. And Jesus engages in a, in a conversation, wants to get to know her, wants to talk to her, and it's the first person Jesus reveals his true identity as the Messiah of the world. She's the first one he tells. And she's the first missionary as he sends her back into town to tell others. Her? Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters this leper. And leprosy, they were unclean. They weren't allowed to be around people who didn't have leprosy. And he runs up to Jesus. He breaks the law. And he says, Jesus, if you're willing, will you heal me? Matthew 8, it says, Jesus touched him. And then he said, I am willing, be healed. Notice the order that Jesus does this. The rest of us, if we had that power, we'd say, whoa, 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 be healed. Now let me touch you. In Matthew 8, it says, Jesus touched him and then said, I'm willing, be healed. Jesus healed his disease, his physical disease with a word. But before he did that, he healed something deep inside that was scarred with a touch. Who does that? Love one another is an old command. But Jesus takes it to a new level. Hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and next to him are two men who have made their career of breaking the law so bad that the Roman government has decided that they are not worthy of breathing the air on this planet any longer. Their lives have no redeeming value. One of them continues to, to mock and to jeer Jesus. One of them says, Jesus, hey, any chance at all? And Jesus, at that moment, with this man having nothing to offer, invites him into the kingdom. And while he's hanging there, looks down on those who are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them. It's an old command. Jesus takes it to a level they've never, ever seen before. The children that the disciples are trying to move away, Jesus has them sit on his lap so he could bless them. The women who are never included, Jesus has them sit at his feet so that they can learn from him. The sinners and all the ungodly, the far from God that everyone else avoids, he has them sit at his table so he can have a relationship with them. Jesus commends a woman of questionable past in her practices of her extravagant worship of pouring out expensive perfume and crying and weeping and kissing his feet and wiping them with her hair, culturally unthought of, and Jesus commends her for it. 
Jesus commends a Samaritan leper who comes back because of his gratitude while the other nine did not. Jesus commends a Roman soldier, a centurion, because of his faith, and he says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. It's a Roman centurion. Jesus does that. It's an old command, love one another, but Jesus takes it to a level they've never seen before. Nobody loves like that. It's no wonder Paul would write to the church in, in, in the book of Colossians, I pray that you would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We've never understood it like this before. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Romans chapter eight, I'm convinced, he says, I'm convinced that neither height nor death nor life nor death nor de angels or demons, nothing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Come hell or high water, nothing separates us from his love. There is no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up, no wall he won't kick down, and no lie he won't tear down coming after you, leaving the 99 and going after the one. It's an old command. But in Jesus, it's a new dimension, higher than they could have ever dreamed or imagined before. You might be saying, well, Bob, Jesus is not the only one in history who sacrificed. He's not the only one that's had this altruistic approach to others in, in humanity. Granted. But Jesus is such the personification of love at a different level that when it even comes to his love to the Father. See, God says to us, love me and obey me and I will give you life. But he says to Jesus, love me and obey me and I will crush you unto death. For us, if we forsake our will and go God's way, we experience life and we know that he'll never leave us or forsake us, and yet Jesus in the garden prays not my will, but your will be done, and hours later utters, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this one who knew no sin becomes sin, condemned to death in the wrath of God. And why would he do that? Because he loves us. It's an old, old command. But what Jesus does is so far beyond. It's like it's brand new. And John writes this. John writes, I, I, I'm not writing you a new command, but it is new. And, and can we talk about John for just a minute here? John, who's been nicknamed in church history as the apostle of love, what a great moniker. I mean, the apostle of love. And, and we'll see it throughout this, this whole document of 1 John. This is, love is his theme. John is believed to be the youngest of the 12 disciples. In fact, if you look in the Da Vinci's painting, the, the man sitting right next to Jesus is John. No facial hair. And a bit effeminate. In fact, many people would say, well, maybe it's not John. Maybe it's Mary Magdalene. John is this young, younger one. 
and, and this, this painting portrays him, the, the apostle of love as this soft, gentle, young man. But what if in his youth, he wasn't this gentle, naive, innocent young man? What if he was bold and brash and zealous? What if there was something about him that was vying for power and, and selfish ambition? Remember when Jesus calls him and his brother, James and John, to follow him, he gives them a nickname, Sons of Thunder. You don't get a nickname Son of Thunder by being Mr. Rogers. And there's a time when he and his brother pulled Jesus aside, and one of the gospels says they even bring their mom in on this, and they say, Jesus, we want you to do us a favor. And he says, what do you want me to do? And he says, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be number one and number two. We want power. We want position. We want, we want to, we, it's about us. And there was a time when Jesus is going through Samaria, and there's a town that doesn't want him there. We read this in Luke chapter nine. It says, but the people there did not welcome him, Jesus, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Apostle of love? I think not. Disciple of destruction. Pastor of disaster. Samaritan blaster. He is the one that wants to bring fire from heaven and wipe them all out. How does he become the apostle of love? I think it's that love awakens love. And he had heard what Jesus had taught for three years. He had seen how Jesus had lived for three years. He had experienced the love of Christ and his grace and forgiveness for the things that he had done and said and was even referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he alone, the only disciple at the foot of the cross, may have heard Jesus welcoming the thief into the kingdom and praying for forgiveness. And John realizes it's an old, old commandment I've heard and known my whole life. But in Jesus, it's a new level. And the way he's loved me, I'm the beloved. I've received that love. I've experienced that love. And if my identity and my value and my worth and my security is in being beloved by the Father, then I don't have to be a son of thunder anymore. And I don't have to vie for position and power and I don't have to be so destructive. I think it changed him. Now, I'm so out of time, and we haven't even gotten going in this bad boy. All right, we're going to have to fly through this. We've got about three minutes. So he does all this, lays this out. But he doesn't just stay with the theological. He takes it to the personal. It's not just, yeah, this love of another kind with Jesus it's not just I want you to believe that or hear about that or agree with that or be awed by that or be amazed by that. It goes beyond that. He says, I want this to change your life the way it changed my life. Back to verse eight. He says, yet I am writing you a new command. The truth is, uh, this truth, its truth is seen in him. And you. Whoa, 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 wait a second. No, I'm not there yet. No, no, no. And you. Because the darkness is passing 
and the true light is already shining. Don't you understand? You have been the recipient. You are the beloved. That light, that true light, is life in Christ. You are his beloved. This new command was fully realized and revealed in Jesus and it's been fully realized and revealed in your life and it's reflected now, now that you have received that, you pass that on. You go in love, you be a light. You take this old command and you take it to a new level by the power of the Holy Spirit because of who you are in Christ and you love the way that you have been loved. Now let's get really, really practical because that's all great for John and the church in Ephesus. But how about us here today? I think I'd be really hard pressed to find anyone in person or online who would not agree with me in this. That we live in a world that is increasingly hostile, filled with hatred, and division, and judgment, and cancellation, and siloing, and, and, and condemnation, it's just so much. It's the MO of our world, and sadly, it's often the MO of the church. And Jesus would say, not so, beloved, not so with you. You don't operate and take your cues from the world. We operate and take our cues from Jesus. He set the example, he taught, he modeled, he loved you in such a way. John 13 again, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. An old command at a new level to who you are, beloved, the power of the Holy Spirit within you. The church is known for a lot of things. Is it known for love? You and I are known for a lot of things. Are we known for love? We are the beloved. And I think what would be good for us is to, instead of saying, well, the church ought to do this and that church hurt this, to stop and say, okay, I wanna look at the cross and look in the mirror and hear the crucified Lord and resurrected one say, you are my beloved. Now, go. Go in that love and be known for love. This old, old commandment that's brand new in Jesus Christ. You love even and especially those who are difficult to love, those who are different than you, think different, believe different, vote different, love them. People who live different, act different, behave different, love them. People that look different, and speak different, love them. You don't have to agree, but you have to love. What if? What if we took this old, old commandment made new in Christ and by his power begin to live 